Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. We're going to look at the Word of God this morning out of Daniel chapter 1. It's a long passage. I'm just going to touch highlights of that passage, and we're going to look at some of the lessons we learn from this young man, Daniel, who lived in exile. I'm going to ask you, have you ever uh, experienced a setback in your life? And I don't mean a little setback, but a major setback. The kind that made you seriously wonder if God was paying attention. If maybe you'd done something wrong to draw his uh, anger or something, maybe he just forgot about you and he's paying attention to too many other people, but you feel like this is a major blow to the progress of your life. Maybe it's uh, an illness or a passing of somebody dear to you. Maybe it's job loss or some physical debilitation. Uh, Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something deeper, personal. But the kind of setback that leaves you reeling, it's like a gut punch. You you can barely feel like you're going to recover. I wonder if you've ever faced a setback like it. And, And then the second question I have for you is, how did you respond to it? What do you do... And I know it's wrong to speak of life like it's some, some neutral force out there, but what do you do when life punches you in the stomach? What do you do when the things totally outside your control conspire against you and you feel helpless like a cork just bobbing along the ocean and you can't control where you'll end up? How do you respond? I think it's in some way a measure of our relationship with God to see how we respond to times of really terrible setback like that. You know, the ancient Israelites in the year 605 B.C. saw a foreign army from among the hated Babylonians come boldly towards the city of Jerusalem, lay siege to it, and defeat them. And that was a serious gut punch because they'd already seen the northern kingdom fall. Now here was the last remaining vestige of ancient Israel, the promised nation of God, holding out against the Babylonians, and they succumbed. They lost. And I want you to think about what that means. You you had placed all your hopes on believing that you were special to God, that somehow you are going to be protected and safe, and all of a sudden, your enemy comes to your doorstep, and they beat you. And for all Israel, this was like a gut punch that knocked the wind out of them. They couldn't quite make sense of it. It says says also in the historical record of 2 Kings 24-14, that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the emperor of the Babylonians, took 10,000 captives from Jerusalem. And listen to who he took. He took all the princes and the best of the soldiers, craftsmen and smiths, so only the poorest people were left behind in the land. So this foreign emperor comes to Jerusalem. He carts away the very best of all the people. He even takes some of the treasures out of the temple of God and leaves the Israelites just scratching their heads wondering, what on earth just happened? Among the nobility and the cream of the crop that left Jerusalem in exile um, was a young man named Daniel and three of his good friends. And this young man, Daniel, lived a life in exile that stands as an example for us. And the book of Daniel that was handed down to us now is a record of the exile through the eyes of this young man. And it's a really, really interesting study, and there are so many applicable lessons for us to learn for our lives today. I want to focus this morning on some of the key things we learn from Daniel's conduct in chapter 1. And the first is, Daniel never gave up hope. Daniel never gave up hope. 
It says in verse 1 that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, it just so happens that in the last month or so, uh, ever since I gave up those video games, I've got all this extra time and I've filled some of it reading novels. And the novels I've begun, I've begun to read are by this guy named Michael Curtis Ford. He writes about ancient Greek and Roman warfare. Historically accurate, but filled with all kinds of uh, creative license. And they're really enjoyable. I'm learning more than most people today should know about ancient warfare. And, I, and a lot of it has to do with siege. And let me tell you how a siege worked in ancient warfare. A siege always occurred when a much more powerful army was marching against an inferior army. And so people would hear news from the outpost far away that this massive army, and let me give you some sense of scale, big armies back in those days usually numbered at least 100,000 people on the march and around maybe 15,000, 20,000 cavalry riding on horseback, and they were coming. And you can imagine what it looked like because, you know, you could see this big dust cloud rising up and you knew that trouble was on the horizon. As the early warnings came in, the people in the surrounding countryside would go, oh man, we're going to die. And they would pack all their belongings, grab their kids, and they would run behind the safety of the city wall, and they would shut the gates and just hunker down for a really long wait. Now, a siege only happens when the attacking army is so clearly superior that there's no fighting chance of engaging them in the field. And so the only hope is for the people in the city to just hide and hope they go away. Problem is, the people in the city have limited supplies of water and food, and the besieging army has all kinds of time and all kinds of freedom, and it's just a waiting game. But it's a very cruel kind of waiting game because it's a slow war of attrition, just waiting for the people in the city to get hungrier and dirtier and more desperate. They cut off the water supply. And I don't know if you take for granted what water is to us, but if you ever get the water supply cut off at your house, you flip on the tap and nothing happens, it's a very strange feeling. It makes you feel extra thirsty when you can't get water. I don't know why it's like that. And slowly the people inside start to get more desperate. If they're very stubborn, very determined, they'll go as far as they can. It says that the siege often lasted long enough that mothers would even cook and eat their own children out of the desperateness of their hunger. That's the, that's the ugliness, the cruelty of a siege. And when you lost your city to a siege, it was a slow and very humiliating way to lose a fight. Because you don't even really shoot off an arrow, you just wait, and when you can't take it anymore, they just pound down the gates, and they take all the people with scurvy and disease out the gates, and you just, you're so clearly defeated there's no dignity left, nothing to straighten your spine. And this is the loss that Judah suffered at the hands of Babylon. And when this happened, it was more than just a military defeat because it, was, it had spiritual significance. You see, Jerusalem was the holy city of God. We can't fully appreciate what that feels like except think back to 9-11 and some of the emotional impact of that day and you begin to kind of understand that things like that aren't supposed to happen to us Americans. We're not supposed to see our skyscrapers collapse like that. That's for the third world, that's for other countries, but we're not supposed to see that on American soil. And so there's this collective feeling of violation and confusion. How could this ever happen? And remember all the politicians and pundits got on, and that's the question everyone asked. How can this happen? And it left the Israelites seriously questioning 
whether God was on duty or not, whether God continued to be good, continued to love them, or whether he had just abandoned them. Nebuchadnezzar added insult to injury by raiding the temple, and he took some of the treasures out of God's sacred temple. And, and maybe we can't fully understand this, but these are objects so sacred that even among the class of priests, only certain select few were able to touch them without having some kind of curse come upon them. These were holy objects, and the Babylonians unceremoniously just walked into the temple and started grabbing stuff and throwing them out the carts, and they carted them away to Babylon and put them into the temple of their god, Marduk. Now this was the ultimate sense of defeat, because now what that signaled to the Israelites is, what just happened? How are we to understand our fate now? And, and to, the, to most people in Jerusalem, here were the two theories of what just happened. Either, number one, God was too weak to defend himself and his city and his people. Or number two, God just stopped loving them and abandoned them to their enemies. Now, we know reading the Bible that neither one of those theories is true, but if you had been in Jerusalem in the original siege, those would have been the thoughts running through your mind. What just happened here? Did God just blow us off? Now, this is not just a story about ancient Jerusalem because some of us have passed through a season in our lives where we feel exactly like that, haven't we? Have any of you ever asked the question, whether out loud or in silence, what is going on? Is God paying attention? Is he fair? Is he just? How can something like this happen to us? Things like this aren't supposed to happen to God's people. A second question is facing them now too. The practical question is this. Now that Jerusalem has fallen and it seems like God has either abandoned us or is too weak to do anything, does it still make sense to be faithful to this God? When it seems like God is absent, does it still make sense to hold out and try to be faithful to a God who seems has just left us to our fate? Now, God was involved. It said that God was the one who handed Jerusalem over to the Babylonians, but it wasn't to destroy them or to punish them. It was to preserve them because Jerusalem was becoming so morally corrupt that in just a generation or two, they would have destroyed themselves. And God was using Babylon as a way to put Jerusalem and his Israelites into safekeeping for a while so that they can grow strong again. But from that point of view of the Israelites, they were seriously facing this question. Does it make sense in this time of crisis when I feel so alone, so abandoned by God, to keep believing in God, going to church, giving my tithes, raising my children in Sunday school? Does it make any sense at all to be faithful to a God who appears to have become faithless to us? Now maybe you've been there too. Maybe you've seriously asked the question, is there really any point in maintaining the pretense that I believe in God when God seems to have shut the switch off on my particular life? Well, one thing we learn from Daniel and his conduct in exile is he never gave up hope that even though it looked like the bad guys were winning, God was always in control. You know, there are going to be seasons of our lives when it really looks like there's some senseless victory granted to those who oppose God. Like the bad guys are winning. But you know what? If you really know who God is, we are a people who have the benefit of having the whole scriptures and we know the end from the beginning. We know how this story ends. 
Let me give you an illustration. About a month ago, I had recorded a Bears game, and Elijah and I, one of our favorite things that me and Elijah do, we watch recorded Bears games, and we try to study the game, and I try to ignite his passion for football. And, and you know, just I, I love football. It's the greatest sport ever invented. The worst football game is better than the best baseball game, at least in my humble opinion, all right? It is just such an awesome sport. And we were getting ready to watch it, and something happened, and it, I'm not going to tell you who to blame, but uh, somebody let us know the score right before we decided to watch. Now, you know, when you're excited about a game, half the excitement is not knowing the outcome. And when you know who wins, it sort of lets the air out of the, the balloon. You know what I mean? And so we're a little deflated, but even football where you know the end is still football. So we watched it. But what was interesting is a lot of the drama was very subdued because for a while the Bears were behind, but we knew they were going to win. And so even when they were behind, you're kind of like, it's not that scary though because I know how this ends. And it's the same way in just about every American movie ever made. The action hero is, is chained up and he's attached to some cage that's sinking slowly underwater and sharks are swimming all around and people are shooting guns and you're going, ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. Come on. Do you really wonder what's going to happen in an American action movie? The hero never dies. There's only been one movie I've ever watched produced by American Hollywood where the hero died. It's an old movie. It's called To Live and Die in L.A. It's from the 80s, all right? So if it's a spoiler to you, catch up a little bit, all right? That's the only time I've ever seen the hero die. There's no real mystery because the hero always prevails in Hollywood. The movies would make no money if that weren't the case. And so you kind of look at the kids who are looking really worried and you go, you kind of snicker because you know that we will win at the end of the movie. There'll be that scene where the spaceship re-enters orbit and everyone stands up and there's that slow clap, right? Or everyone cheers at once. That's what we love and that's what we've come to expect. When we see the chips are down, when it seems like the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning, it's so tempting to wonder, should I transfer my allegiance? Should I shift my loyalties because it seems like my faith in God is misplaced? My bets are hedged if I go with the, the bad guys right now. Because I put my trust in God and it doesn't seem to have paid off yet. And that's a very strong temptation for us when we hit crisis. We can learn from Daniel's example that no matter what our eyes are telling us, God is always in control. And I've got to tell you, sometimes we say that like it's just a platitude. Don't worry, they're there. God is in control, as if we don't really know that. But I know with a certainty, because our faith and the Word of God tells us, God prevails, He wins every single time. When all is said and done, justice will happen. The righteous will prevail. The wicked will perish and God will have His glory. That's how the story ends. I'm sorry, I just gave away the ending. I've taken all the drama out of the, the defeats of our lives, the times when it seems like our team's going to lose the game. But I hope that encourages you. Don't ever believe what your eyes are telling you if your eyes are telling you that God's losing the fight. Let me give you a, a second observation from Daniel's conduct. And that is that Daniel served his city. Daniel served his city. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had expanded his kingdom through warfare. 
And he was a very good war leader. I mean, he, he expanded his kingdom by just mercilessly running over smaller kingdoms with a very great military force. But he realized with a great, brilliant strategy, the same one that Alexander the Great would employ hundreds of years later, he realized that he could expand and secure his kingdom better, not by crushing those he defeated, but by absorbing them into his empire. Here's the thing about building empires. If you do it with a heavy hand and you destroy the people you beat, they remain bitter. If you have to hold them down with military force, you have to sleep every night with one eye open. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you're one of those sneaky older brothers who's always giving your, your younger siblings a shaft and you're, you're really like stealing things and they're tricking them, then every night you're wondering, when are they going to get their revenge? But you can really secure your empire by empowering those you beat giving them positions of privilege so that they have just as much to lose as you do. And that's the brilliant strategy, and that's what he did. Listen to what it says he did. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. So he's taking some of the very best of the very best and he's creating a little university and what he's teaching them is teaching them the statesmanship, the culture, the collective wisdom and literature and language of the Babylonian people. In other words, this is like a, a very special little college where the cream of the crop of the exiles will get a chance to establish their place in the hierarchy of Babylonian nobility. It's a brilliant strategy, you see, because these defeated nobles marching out of Jerusalem thought they were going to go and be the, the laughingstock of Babylon, maybe enter into slavery. They had no power, no expectations, and what they expected was very harsh treatment. Instead, this crazy king says something else to him. He goes, hey, listen, you, you uh, Israelite exiles from Jerusalem, gather around. I'm starting a new college, and it's kind of like an Ivy League college, and I want some of the best of your children to study here and if they successfully graduate, they're going to have a place in my administration. I know you came to the city defeated and in chains thinking that you had no future, and I'm giving you a lifeline. You have a chance to let your children become part of the ruling class of the conquering nation. Well, what family is not going to jump at that opportunity? And when you look at the admissions requirements, it's really interesting. It's, you have to have noble birth. You have to be really smart, and you've got to be good-looking. That's a very strange... That would never fly in an American educational system. And first two, maybe, noble birth, it's kind of like the unspoken rule of the Ivy League, right? Noble birth and brains and all that. But you also had to be good-looking. And so just getting invited to apply to this university was already a really huge compliment. It's very flattering. Because someone else is telling you, man, you're smart, you've got good parents, and uh, you're hot. I'm sure a lot of families jumped at the chance to register their kids because everybody loves a little hope, a little advantage over their neighbors. But when you look at Daniel's conduct through the rest of the story, it's very clear that Daniel was not in this to get an advantage over his neighbor. He wasn't in this to get a good life for himself. And so it leaves the question, what was Daniel's motivation for joining this university, for finding a place in the conquering enemy king's administration, what was the point? We get a little clue to this in a letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote to the community of exiles. You guys might remember Jeremiah. He was a prophet that kept telling the truth and nobody would listen to him. 
He's called the weeping prophet because he would always say stuff to people and they would just blow him off and everything he said would come true and then they would punish him for it. I'd weep too if that was my life. If that was my job, I'd be pretty depressed. Well, Jeremiah, hearing the news of the Babylonian captivity, writes a letter to the elders of those who were exiled away. And in this letter, listen to what he writes. Okay. Sorry. He writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's very unexpected advice. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's very unexpected advice. Usually what the, the prophets would say is, Fight it with all your being. Don't ever let them conquer you or absorb you into their culture. But instead, what, what Jeremiah says to them is, you're going to be there for a while. Be smart. Thrive. Prosper. Flourish in your time in Babylon. And what is more, don't do it like a tumor in that city apart from everyone. Become a part of its life. Love the city. Be a blessing to it. Put out your tentacles and become attached to the people around you so that wherever you go, you will be a blessing to that city. You will pray for that city because if the city does well, you will do well. You're not somehow immune to what happens to Babylon anymore. You are now a part of that place and your fate and its fate are entwined. Do you see how powerful that advice is? And I believe hearing the words of that letter from a prophet Daniel heard that and he accepted the advice and he matriculated in this school knowing that he was going to serve in the administration of the enemy nation that conquered them. I believe this teaches us that God calls us to be a blessing in whatever place he has planted us. And it really doesn't matter whether you like the circumstances under which you come to that place. I mean, not everybody's in this Chicagoland area by choice. This, for many of you maybe, it's not even your first choice of places to live. Walking in from the parking lot this morning, even I was cold and I like cold weather. I had a fleeting thought of warmer climates, just for a second. I know it obsesses Pastor Frank, but I had a fleeting thought, you know, of warmer, warmer climates and sitting on a hammock and, you know, drinking a non-alcoholic beverage and, you know, just relaxing. Maybe an alcohol, we'll see. Maybe you don't want to live here. Maybe you got shot down for another job. Maybe you really wanted to be in San Diego or San Francisco or Northern Virginia, but you're stuck in Chicago. Maybe you're at this church, not as your first choice. You stumble in here, you were, you're driven here by painful experiences. Maybe you find yourself in places where you did not choose to be. But regardless of how you got there, God's calling on each of us is to plant and bloom where we're, where we're put and then to be a blessing to the city around us. I'm really discouraged when I sometimes hear immigrants talking in a way that they say, you know, I came here to have a better fortune in my life but I'm not really a part of this country. 
This isn't my home. These are not my people. It's not my government. I have, it's none of my business. I'm just here to make a lot of money and maybe someday I'll go home. I think that's a terrible, terrible, unbiblical, ungodly attitude. You tell that to people who say stuff like that. It doesn't matter what your motive was for coming here. If you are here, then this is the place you're called to be a blessing. And wherever you are, bloom where you're planted. Because God has a purpose to make you salt and light and a a genuine benefit to whatever place He has established you. Christians are never meant to go to a place and leave it unchanged. Everywhere we go, we're supposed to cast a benefiting, positive presence. Impact that place in the name of God. That's always been our calling, no matter what the reasons for our being there. And I hope that that really rings true to you. You might be in a neighborhood that you don't even want to live in. Maybe some of you are are really mad at your, your husband because he didn't buy you that house in the neighborhood you wanted, and you're not happy in the neighborhood you are in. But you know what? God has got you in that neighborhood He is messing around with the real estate market. And do you know why? Because you belong right where you are. He has a purpose for you there. It's not a prison to escape. It is your mission field. And for as long as he's got you there, it is that city that you are called to serve and to bless. Don't ever forget that. We are not simply passing through. We live here. And if you live in Hanover Park like I do, then your fate, your welfare is tied the welfare of Hanover Park. And you fill in the blank with whatever city that you live in. I'm looking right at my neighbors, and so we're, we're going to bless Hanover Park together. Amen? That's right. And let me give you a third thing. Daniel dared to be different. You know, to sweeten the deal, Nebuchadnezzar threw in a little bribe. He said, not only will your children study at the finest university in your own native language and then be trained in our language, we're going to enjoy the finest room and board. We're going to build fine dormitories, but they're not going to eat dormitory food. How many of you guys remember dormitory food? If you went to college anywhere other than Wheaton College, dormitory food is not one of your highlights of your memory, is it? These guys were going to enjoy food that was reserved for the king's table. Prime rib, honey-baked ham, gigantic clusters of grapes, chocolate cake, with whipped cream on top. They were going to have the finest diet available to young men. And I don't know about you, but that in itself is a pretty huge enticement. It's not an easy thing to pass up. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. It says that he resolved ahead of time. In the King James Version, it says he purposed in his heart. Before he even got into the situation, he made up his mind, this is where I draw the line. I'm not going to eat that king's food. I'm not going to drink his wine. I'll go to his school, but this is where I draw the hard line in the sand. It ends here. I refuse to eat from the king's table. Now, I'm kind of scratching my head as I think about that because he's going to go to the king's school, learn the king's philosophy, learn his culture and language. So why is he making such a big deal about the food? What could be the motivation there? I think there's a couple theories that are are circulating on what was driving Daniel to make such a hard position 
take such a hard position on this one issue. One is that the Jews were governed by a lot of dietary restrictions. There were a lot of food laws about what they could and couldn't eat. And these food laws were so central to what it meant to be a Jew. That perhaps Daniel reasoned, if I compromise here, I'll compromise everywhere. There is no end to the compromises I'll make. If this is not even sacred to me, then what is sacred? I think that's a very, very strong argument to be made in our own lives. This concept of the slippery slope, that if you go right to the edge of it, if you can blow this thing off, then the word sacred has no power in our lives. Do you understand that? There are certain lines we cross that once we cross them, every other guardrail collapses before us. The sanctity of the marriage vow, for example, is one such boundary. You cannot, for example, if I cannot go up to another woman and go, you know, I just want one kiss on the mouth, just one. Let's not talk about it again. Let's not do anything. You can't do that. That's a sacred boundary. And if you could do that, and you call it no big deal, then sky's the limit for you. Because the word sacred is a joke, isn't it? If that's not sacred, then what can be sacred? What can you elevate above that line? And so Daniel reasoned, if, if I won't draw the line here, then i got nothing I stand for. And maybe that's why he did it. Another reason might be that he was willing to go to the king's school because it was strategic for God's plan. To get an influential position in the king's administration would serve Israel's purpose, would serve God's purpose, would give him a very heavy leverage for the future of his nation. But he refused to let other people call his motives into question. Maybe people say, oh Daniel, you're not doing this for God, you're just doing it because you like prime rib and good wine. And who doesn't like prime rib and good wine? Right? Maybe people would question his real motivation for taking this special privileged place among the exiled community. Whatever the theory of why he did it, the important thing is he resolved in his heart ahead of time that this is where he would draw the lines for himself. Now I know some of us are wired in such a way that we're hearing all this and we're going, what on earth is the big deal? This is everything that's wrong with religion is we make a big mountain out of a molehill. Someone might challenge you, you know, why weren't you at church this past Sunday? Oh, is that the only reason you didn't come? And they start challenging you, and you're like, what is your problem? It's just church. I'll be here next week. I was here last week. And we start to ask things like, what is the big deal? Why are you so agitated over what appears to me to be nothing? Because for Daniel and for those people, it just happens that that small and trivial thing to you is a very big thing to them. I can't quite explain why, but sometimes a person just knows, just knows, that what seems trivial to everyone else, what seems like being a legalistic Pharisee, is for you a symbolic and very important line you've drawn for yourself. I can't explain it, but sometimes a person just knows that everyone's criticizing them, making fun of them. Why are you such a legalist? But you're saying, no, for me, this is a line I have to draw. It's a very symbolic important line. Let me give you an illustration of this. The 1924 Olympics were held in Paris, and there was a Scottish runner who didn't have any formal training. He just ran like the wind through the highlands of Scotland. They, they, call, they call him the Flying Scotsman. His name was Eric Little. He was a very committed Christian, and his best event was a 100-meter race. It turned out that as they published the schedules for the Olympic Games months in advance, the 100-meter race would be run on a Sunday. 
Now for Eric Little, as a committed Christian, for him, the idea of Sabbath being sacred was very, very central to his faith. If he can violate the sanctity of his appointment with God on the Sabbath day, then nothing else was beyond the reach of his compromise. And so he drew a line in the sand and said, I refuse to run on Sunday. Unless the Olympic Commission changes the day of the race, there is no way that in good conscience I can run on that day. Some of his harshest critics were his fellow Christians who said, you have a chance to glorify God by winning that race. Don't be such a Pharisee. Run on Sunday just this once. And Eric Little wouldn't do it. He just refused. They wrote about it in the press. If, if there had been a Mike and Mike show or ESPN radio, they would have been scratching their heads going, what is wrong with this guy? He was born to run, and he's not going to run in this once every four-year event because it's on a Sunday. No one can explain why, but for Eric Little, that was a line in his heart he would not and could not cross. The Olympic Committee did not change the day of the race, and so he began training for his second best event, the 400-meter race. He never ran that 100-meter, but he did run the 400-meter. And just as he was approaching the starting block, an American trainer who had been following the story so inspired by what he saw in Eric Little's devotion, handed him a slip of paper, and Eric Little ran the race holding that slip of paper in his hand. It was an excerpt from 1 Samuel 3.20. And it said, I will honor he who honors me. He clutched that piece of paper. He ran, and not only did he win, but he set a new world record, 47.6 seconds for the 400 meter. That's impressive especially back in 1924 before steroids were invented and all of that. And you know, a lot of people ask the question, Eric Little, what is your serious major league problem? It's once every four years. It's one day, an arbitrary thing. God will forgive you. That's why Jesus hung on the cross. He heard every manner of argument, and at some level, those critics were right. He wouldn't have melted into wax. He wouldn't have been stricken with leprosy. He might have even won the race and did the thing that all athletes do. Right? Giving all the glory to God because they won. But you know what? He gave greater glory to God by knowing that invisible fence in his heart that if he would have compromised there, maybe not for everyone, but for him, it would have spelled the beginning of the end of the meaning of sacred between him and God. I think it's an important principle for us to learn from Daniel. Because people may criticize you. They may question your wisdom, your thinking. They may even call you a Pharisee. But if there's a line you've got to draw in your own heart and you resolve in advance that I will not cross that line, so be it. If you decided in your heart never to drink alcohol and people say, you know, Jesus turned water into wine. Why don't you have a sip with me? if you decided to observe some dietary discipline for yourself, whatever it is you've decided in your heart, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual, stick to your convictions. Dare to be different. I find it terribly annoying when Pastor Matt refuses to eat the junk food that I try to offer him. He's so disciplined. And, you know, they say misery loves company. I know I shouldn't be eating it, but it makes me enjoy it more when he would eat it. But he never, ever does. It's so annoying. Right? So annoying so consistent in it. And I think that's the way that we really ought to be. Because if you give in once, 
where does it end? Then instead of being a person of conviction, you are a person without conviction. And a person without conviction can be taken any which way the wind blows. What was tricky in Daniel's case was that another man's fate was linked to his decision. Now, this chief of the eunuchs, which is a very dubious um, distinction. I mean, I like to be chief, but among the eunuchs, maybe not so much. Okay? But here was this chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, and he said, look, I appreciate that you are an idealist, you've got these rules you're setting up for yourself, but if you start looking shabby because of your poor diet, king's going to have my head, literally. The king's going to chop it up, and so my fate is tied to the outcome of your little, your little decision. And you know what? Daniel could have easily looked at this eunuch and said, well, I don't see how that's my problem at all, eunuch. I'm going to make my decisions, you deal with your problems, and let's see what happens. But what's amazing about Daniel is he takes a very different approach. He's considerate. And what he teaches us is that it's possible to be different, to stand up for your beliefs, to be a person of conviction without being a jerk, without having to degenerate into obnoxious behavior or self-righteous judgmentalism. And here's what he proposes, such a wise course of action. He says, listen, I know that you'll be in huge trouble if my little thing doesn't work out for you, so why don't we do a little 10-day experiment? And if it doesn't work out, I'll eat whatever you give me. Let me and my friends here just drink water and eat vegetables, and then after 10 days, if we don't look as good as the other guys, then we'll forget the whole thing. I'll just compromise. That was wise because this eunuch could then accept Daniel's cautious and wise approach and say, I respect you because not only do you stand up for your convictions, you stand up for my life too. You're not shoving it in my face. You're not pretending that your decision is somehow better than mine. That's one thing I love about Pastor Matt is he never goes, you shouldn't eat that either, you slob. He just goes, nope, nope, nope. Even more annoying. I wish he would call me a slob. <laughs> it's possible to stick to your guns without aiming them at other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? And Daniel teaches us this in a very poignant way. And you know the rest of the story. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel not only looks as good as, but they look better. In fact, as a compliment, says they were fatter. I, I'm not sure that, that would you know, ring the same way today, but they look fatter than the other guys. And the eunuch said, this is amazing. Your God must be for real. And so he got rid of all the prime rib and all the wine and gave him a veggie platter and water. You know the stand that Daniel and his young friends took so early in their career? It was very important for them because they learned how to say yes and they learned how to say no at precisely the right times. They said yes to an amazing opportunity that maybe others would have questioned their motives for. But when it was the right time to say no, they said it without compromise. King, we will go to your school, but we will not eat from your table. That's a very risky way to, to live. Especially for somebody who should have no hope and is given an olive branch, a ray of light. And to jeopardize that as a young man is just lunacy, but he does it. And for the rest of his life, as you read the book of Daniel, time and time again, he would find the boldness along with his three friends to say to the king, we've done a lot of things for you, but we draw the line here. We will now bow to a statue of you. 
We will not stop praying just because you tell us to stop praying to our God. We will go very far with you, but there are limits because these things define us. And if we give in, we are nobody anymore. We don't know ourselves, we don't know our God, and we cannot afford to say yes to these things. It was a matter of the survival of their own dignity and their integrity as people that they were able to say no boldly when no was absolutely necessary. And they learned this on the very first trial of their young career. Now I want to challenge this because maybe some of us have already slipped towards the edge of that slippery slope. Maybe some of us are careening over the edge of the cliff already. But it's not too late to decide for yourself that there are certain boundaries I must draw in my heart it's not based on the criticism of others, on the, on the uh, furrowed brows and the clucking of their tongues, but it's about you and God and what it means for you to belong to Him. To preserve the power of the word sacred in your life. Because we live in a very profane and base society where sacred is nowhere. Everything's up for grabs. Burn the flag if you want to. Wipe your butt with the pages of a Bible. People are doing all kinds of things in the name of art and protest so that nothing is left sacred in our culture. The word has very great power for those who will guard its definition. What's sacred to you? Where is the line you have to draw so you can sleep at night knowing that you've maintained your identity? You've guarded who you are at the core. Are there lines you won't cross? <laughs> or are you just going to be a cork bobbing on the water, following the currents wherever they take you? I challenge you, Harvest Community Church, to become men and women of principle. And let's dare to be different, but as we do it, let's not be obnoxious to people. Let's do it in a way that glorifies God and endears others to God. What do we learn from Daniel's life? We learn that even when it looks like God's not paying attention and the bad guys are winning, make no mistake, our team gets the victory at the end. Don't shift your loyalties midstream because you think the tide is changing. It never changes permanently away from God. He always wins. He's always in control. And don't be one of those caught grabbing onto the wrong person when justice is meted out at the end. We also learn from him that wherever God plants us, under whatever circumstances we found ourselves where we are, God's calling on each of us is to serve our city, to be a blessing and an attached, real presence to whatever community he's embedded us in. We are never meant to just quietly mind our own business. We are meant to be a blessing and an attached, linked, connected part of every community he puts us in. That is our call. Jesus equity. We are the salt and the light of the world. You cannot remain neutral. You cannot be invisible if you're God's people. And so you bless the city that you live in until God takes you to another one. And finally, we learn to dare to be different. Dare to draw a line in the sand in our own hearts beyond which we will never cross because that's where the definition of sacred lives for us. 
And we will not compromise across that line under any circumstances because to cross that line will be the death of who we truly and and genuinely are in our hearts. And we will not go there. If we will be as resolute and as considerate and as winsome as Daniel was in the way that we do that and guard ourselves. So my prayer for all of us that the example of Daniel would be a great inspiration and a source of strength because we're living in times very similar to his and to become people like him will bring great glory to God. Let's pray together. I don't want to do too much more talking here, but three main things were said that we learned from Daniel's life. And I believe for different people in our congregation this morning, different aspects of that may be struck home for you. And so I'd ask you to just respond to God according to what you heard him say to you today. And just say, Lord, give me the spirit, the heart, the courage of Daniel who stuck his neck out and risked it all because you matter to him. Let's pray that. And we'll trust the praise team to lead us in some final songs. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.